This is Monday Morning QB, March 22nd, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, Trump's Supreme Court could rewrite our legal future. A small Illinois town takes a step toward reparative justice for black residents with a vote today on reparations payments. Black farmers will get paid in the Biden pandemic relief package, but don't celebrate too soon. It's just a partial victory. A campaign is urging a national moratorium on all utility shutoffs during the pandemic. And the first Native American Interior Secretary will now oversee this country's trail of broken treaties. All that and more, stay with us. Evanston, Illinois, a suburb outside of Chicago, is set to approve a novel reparations plan today. The city has pledged $10 million from taxes on the sale of marijuana to provide payments to blacks who were residents of the city before 1969 and victims of discrimination. Alderman Robert Sue Simmons is the author of the measure and a fifth-generation resident. She says today's action, which is more than 19 years in the making, should be a model for other communities around the country. We acknowledge that this is um, certainly not a settlement, only a first tangible step um, and so much more work to do. Even by our initial fund of $10 million, this is only the first 4% of the work. But the good news is that our community has really um, been committed to us making this a successful um, initiative. And we have residents who have begun to contribute to the reparation fund businesses as well as uh, the faith community has begun to contribute to the reparation fund. Are there opponents that might block the passage of this legislation? Well, we passed this uh policy in 2019 with an eight to one vote. And we expect that the vote will be similar. Um, in the last few weeks, there's uh, been a group to, um, to mobilize um, protesting um, the effort saying that it is not enough. And I could not agree with them more. I do completely uh, disagree with stopping the work because it is not enough. I think the argument there is to expand the, fu- the funds, um, increase stakeholder participation, and to um, grow the uh, programs and the benefits. That would be more of my approach. But otherwise, there has been an overwhelming uh, support, overwhelming interest, um, overwhelming gratitude from the stakeholder community, even the allied community, that we have taken this very big step, uh, but still um, insufficient as it relates to um, advancing full repair. In Evanston, we passed a resolution in 2002 that supported reparations, uh, HR 40 to be more specific. Uh, Judge Lionel Jean-Baptiste was then the second ward alderman, and after his return from the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, he led the city council in passing a resolution to support H.R. 40, which we still support today. So H.R. 40 
is um, a goal that we have as a city. And we understand that it'll take HR 40 and other reparatory justice, justice initiatives to the many institutions and organizations that are accomplices to anti-black policy and other culture and practices that are responsible for our disparate uh, conditions today. So although we are uh, moving forward with the first small tangible step, uh, we are moving with urgency because uh, reparations are overdue. Um, we see conditions that continue uh, COVID has devastated our community. We were still recovering from the housing crisis. Um, you know, slavery has been outlawed and so has redlining, but it's our Hillary Beckles that says we are living in the jet streams of the consequences of slavery. And we see it today in our city. We have a $46,000 average household income divide between black and white Evanston and education gaps and opportunity divide. Um, health disparity, life expectancy uh, disparity of 13 years between black and white Evanston. And we are not unique in that sense. We're not unique um, to be an American city that has a black population that has been excluded from opportunity, um, economic vitality, uh, environmental uh, wellness, and, and the list goes on and on. So proud of, of our city, Evanston, for taking this first step, acknowledging that there is a lifetime of steps ahead of us towards repairing justice for the black community. I noticed that the Jesuit church has also recognized mm -hmm. its culpability and has offered to set up reparations uh, from its sale of slaves and its use of slaves in the history of, of the Jesuit church. Mm -hmm. Appropriately so. So the Jesuit church, church, the Roman Catholic Church just made an announcement, maybe it was the day before yesterday, of an initial $100 million reparation fund, appropriately so. They were, you know, among the uh, initiators of the transatlantic slave trade and currently um, one of the world's largest property owners. Uh, so appropriately so. Um, in our city, very hyper-locally, we have a... Uh, St. Nicholas Catholic Church, one of the larger Catholic church here in town that has made an initial contribution. And we have a, a synagogue here in town, um, Jewish Reconstruction uh, Community Synagogue that has made an initial contribution. And we just got word this week that the Evanston Unitarian Church has set up a matching fund for reparation um, donations. And the, the, this is all appropriate. While, while we are encouraged it's happening. Uh, we understand that these are first steps and uh, we do believe that reparations are due from all forms of government bodies, as well as major institutions, family foundations, corporations, large and small. Um, and it's happening here in Evanston uh, because we passed our legislation in 2019 and therefore our community has spent time um, becoming educated on why reparations, uh, what forms of reparations are appropriate. Uh, we, we still need to do the work to get to what is that number to make us whole, specifically in Evanston. Um, and I hope that we can get the research done to get to that number. But one thing we know is we must start now and that we uh, must move urgently and understand 
understanding that it'll be incremental, but to delay it uh, would not be the justice that we say uh, we seek. I realized on that day in February of 2019 that our great work was only sustaining our racial divide. It was only sustaining um, a disparate uh, condition in the black community. And for us to continue to do more of the same was insufficient. And, and quite honestly, it was insulting uh, because, you know, we were not advancing. We were um, uh, we were on a trajectory of a wealth decline. We still are today. That hasn't changed. Our home ownerships had fallen lower than they were before uh, fair housing laws were passed in 1969 in our city. Um, our black community was on a decline, an exodus by some standards. We have dropped to 16% of the population when we were um, in the mid 20% um, just in 2010. So it was important that we did something radically different than what we had done before, not equity, not uh, income alone, but targeted um, black um, support and, and reparations because um, we it was the black community that had the targeted discrimination and exclusion. So it was appropriate. Has there been any concern about the fact that this revenue stream comes from taxation of the sale of cannabis and a corollary to that, what about those who've been convicted of cannabis sales before it was legalized? Absolutely. So our cannabis um, law is a state of Illinois law and the legislation uh, leads with repair and justice and social equity. So the, um, there have been provisions for um, criminal um, records due to cannabis as well, not only in uh, record expungement, but also in the business. So there is a social equity candidate um, preference for dispensaries, which includes um, minority groups, black community, as well as those that have had a uh, marijuana conviction. Um, and then we accepted the um, cannabis legislation and um, took the max option for taxation, which is 3%. Um, and we decided that the tax revenue was most appropriately spent on reparations because in our city, 71% of the marijuana arrests were in the black community. Now, my hope is that um, we will extend it beyond the $10 million, but it was important to me that we did um, have an introduction that we could pass and build on. And with the new tax coming in, we had not received that tax yet anywhere. It was a pure tax, so we weren't negotiating it away from anything else that the city values. Um, I believe that there is a commitment and the will of the current council and the incoming council and the community at large to expand the budget and expand the program beyond 10 years into perpetuity. Into perpetuity. Alderman Robin Ruth Simmons, thanks for talking with us. All right. Thank you. A property rights case 
that could disrupt the very foundation of U.S. regulatory and anti-discrimination law is being heard by the Supreme Court today. This case is focused on dismantling agricultural worker rights in California, but its impact stretches far beyond the Golden State. Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns has The Brief. An upswell of labor organizing in the New Deal era prompted the creation of legal protections for workers across the country, but agricultural workers were excluded. Decades later, concerted organizing by the United Farm Workers and their consumer allies finally won agricultural workers some protections. And so this all ultimately culminated in the workers winning passage of the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in California. Uh, it was the first state law of its kind to create a state agency called the Agricultural Labor Relations Board. And the goal was to create labor peace in the fields by guaranteeing workers the ability to join together and form unions and safeguard their rights to do so free from employer intimidation. That's Hugh Barron, Scadden Fellow and Senior Staff Attorney at the National Employment Law Project. The California ALRB that Barron describes decided that in order for agricultural workers to enjoy full legal protections, union organizers must be allowed onto company property to share information. The reasons are pretty clear. More than most, agricultural workers are highly migratory and often have no consistent address or phone number. Providing information about workplace rights means organizers must be able to enter the only place workers can consistently be found, the workplace. So when you think about workers going into a factory, right, there's a parking lot to the factory. There are public sidewalks to the factory. There are other ways around the property that you can theoretically have conversations with workers, very practical face-to-face conversations with workers. And generally, those workers don't move around. They, They may move around within town, but they they have slightly more stable homes. That's not the case in agricultural fields. When the public highway ends, the grower's land begins. There's often very, very far private roads that go into the work site. So you really have no, there's no real way outside of the work site to effectively communicate with workers. This decades-old regulation allowing union access to company property is now the focus of a case. Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid being heard by the Supreme Court today. In short, a California agriculture employer is arguing that allowing union organizers onto its property violates Fifth Amendment protections against so-called takings. The Fifth Amendment says that in certain extreme cases, like eminent domain, government must provide compensation for takings of private property. Hugh Barron describes the two very narrow instances in which compensation for takings is merited. A regulation essentially deprives landowners of all viable economic use of a property, but somehow just totally makes the property worthless. The other is when the government does something to install something on a property um, or build something on a property that represents a permanent physical occupation. Right. And so even though it's not depriving the you of all use of the property, it's permanent and immovable and until the government decides to remove it. And it also um, permits regular access into the property to access that thing. In those two very specific kinds of cases, 
the government has said that per se regulatory takings exist. Beyond that, the courts say um, you have to look at the facts of every case. And the facts of this case are pretty clear. Allowing union organizers time-limited access to work sites is by definition not permanent access and by no means makes agriculture unprofitable. So if this particular regulation is, by a straight analysis, entirely legal, what's the point of bringing this case? This case really, you know, it's been framed as being about a specific regulation, but I think it's really about something much deeper. It's whether our society values the dignity and work of black and brown and indigenous farm workers enough to let them have basic access to information about their workplace rights, or whether we instead are gonna bow down to the alleged property interests of large corporations and interests that want to defang and dismantle the regulatory state. This broader legal impact is evidenced by the number of groups filing amicus briefs in the case. Some progressive groups like Barron's National Employment Law Project, but many more conservative groups like the Cato and Buckeye Institutes A brief filed by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse exposed some crucial information about these conservative briefs. That at least 11 of the amicus groups that filed in support of the plaintiffs are funded by the same set of industry-tied foundations and dark money groups, um, including, you know, there are groups you've probably heard about on this network before, like Donors Trust and Donors Capital Fund, the uh, Charles Koch Foundation, Sarah Scaife Foundation, And this is exactly the same thing that happened in the Janus case. And what's important to recognize here is these dark money groups aren't just doing this for fun. Um, They are doing it because they are heavily investing in the outcome they want, which is a broader dismantling of the state's ability to regulate corporate conduct for the public good. So what does this conservative reimagining of governmental authority really mean for the regulatory functions of government? The government would have to pay a private property owner every time it wanted to conduct an inspection. I'm going to say that again. The government would have to pay a private private property owner every time it wanted to conduct an inspection of its premises for health and safety, environmental reasons, food safety reasons, and many, many other kinds of civil law violation reasons. They think that's what the Fifth Amendment requires, that the government has to pay money to inspect an employer's premises to see if an employer is engaged in illegal conduct. That is so obviously not what the Fifth Amendment requires, and I think most people would be absolutely shocked if that became the view of our Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the employer in this case, anti-discrimination laws also could be fundamentally weakened. Non-discrimination laws limit employers' right to exclude, quote-unquote, potential employees or customers on the basis of their race, gender, sexual orientation, disability, or other protected classifications. This isn't a stalking horse. It's not a fantasy. Businesses really made this argument when the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the law that forms the core of our federal anti-discrimination protections, was passed. But the Supreme Court, in this case called Heart of Atlanta Motel, completely rejected that argument. They said, no, this isn't a taking. This doesn't, this is a basic exercise of the state's regulatory police power to regulate the conduct of private businesses. So a ruling here in favor of petitioners would embolden employers to resurrect these kinds of arguments. And it would therefore threaten our critical civil rights protections 
and threaten again who's most affected by that black workers latinx workers other workers of color immigrant workers women workers gay workers all under threat if this theory of the case stands so while this case may appear to narrowly focus on weakening agricultural worker rights in california Hugh Barron says it's really about reducing property rights to the right to exclude. Property rights has long been understood as a, a bundle of rights. It's not just one thing. It involves a lot of different things. And that's actually why the court's regulatory takings analysis as it exists right now makes a lot of sense. It's case by case. It's fact specific unless you're in one of these very two narrow per se categories, right? Where basically you've deprived the owner of all economically viable use or you're permanently occupying their property in some way. That's not what's happening here. That's Hugh Barron, Skadden Fellow and Senior Staff Attorney at the National Employment Law Project. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. A new report from the Center for Biological Diversity shows nearly 800,000 households in just 10 states had their electricity shut off during the pandemic. The new report comes just three days after activists rallied outside the Department of Health and Human Services building in Washington in a continuing campaign urging President Biden to issue a nationwide moratorium on utility shutoffs. Hugh Goodwin has the story. Surely it's no surprise that many Americans are falling behind in their utility bills during the economic crisis fueled by the pandemic. Still, it's a stunning revelation that close to 800,000 households across just 10 states have lost power as a result. And it's hardly the whole picture. Gabriela Sari Tobar is an energy justice campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, and she puts the recently released data from her organization in a larger context. This is only a snapshot. Many utilities actually don't report this data or make it publicly available, so there's no definitive number of total disconnections across the country. The report also explains that if you applied this rate of disconnection to the U.S. at large, it suggests millions of electricity disconnections during the pandemic. And we know that those who are most at risk of disconnections are disproportionately black, brown, indigenous, and low-income communities. As noted in the report, these shutoffs can be a matter of life and death during a pandemic when the best defense is to stay home and practice safe behaviors. But how do you do that if your electricity gets cut off, leaving you without heat or the ability to store food and medicine safely? And what if your water gets cut off, meaning you can't safely wash your hands? Or you lose access to the internet, meaning you can't log on to sign up for a vaccine, and children are cut off from remote learning? 
hoping to put an end to these kinds of nightmare scenarios that are happening. The No Shutoffs Coalition, of which the Center for Biological Diversity is a member, has been advocating for a federal moratorium on utility shutoffs since the COVID-19 crisis began. Gabriela Sari Tobar says that as of now, more than 1,200 organizations have signed on to the effort, and in January, they presented President Biden with a draft executive order outlining how his administration could address this issue. Yeah, well, we're calling on President Biden to instruct CDC Director Walensky to use her authority under the Public Health Service Act to enact a national moratorium on residential disconnections of all water, electricity, broadband, and other necessary utility services for non-payment. This order also includes safe restoration for previously disconnected homes and would last until at least 12 months following the end of the COVID national health emergency. As it stands now, regulating utilities is largely delegated to states, and some states have responded with a patchwork of moratoria on gas, electricity, and water shutoffs. But taken together, it's a limited response that is often short-lived and far from what is needed on a national scale. At the beginning of the pandemic, some states did put in place moratoria on shutoffs, but as of right now, there are only nine states in D.C. with moratoria still in place. And like you said, they're often short-lived, but states like California and New York have strong, longer-lasting orders that waive late fees and provide payment assistance programs. So a moratorium is a crucial step forward in protecting people's access to these vital services, but there must also be a plan to relieve households of utility debt because once these moratoria expire, families are left to pick up the pieces and many end up actually seeing their utilities shut off. In a working paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research, researchers from Duke University found the state moratoria had a notable impact. Their findings, published in January, show that utility disconnection moratoria reduced COVID-19 cases by 4.4% and deaths by 7.4%. The research paper goes on to estimate that a nationwide moratorium on utility shutoffs between March and November of last year would have reduced infection rates by 8.7% and deaths by 14.8%. So what is the likelihood that federal lawmakers would support a national moratorium? Gabriela Seri Tobar says there has been some support in Congress, but still, it's not enough. Well, we have several legislative champions who have shown great leadership on this issue, from Majority Leader Schumer to Senator Merkley and Representative Tlaib. A utility shutoff moratorium was actually passed by the House in the HEROES Act. Unfortunately, it was taken out by the Senate in the bill that they passed. More recently, moratorium legislation didn't appear in the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And while President Biden acknowledges the need to address growing customer debt, having set aside some funding in the recent relief package, this doesn't go nearly far enough to address the issue. 
we have several allies that we're working with, and there's a lot of ground to build, but we are um, pleased so far with the level of support we've received within Congress. Now, in talking about the need for a shutoff moratorium during the pandemic, it's important to note that this is hardly a problem that began with the pandemic. In 2018, nearly a third of households in the United States struggled to pay their energy bills, according to the Energy Information Administration, with the impact again disproportionately felt by Black, Brown, and Indigenous households. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, utility disconnections didn't start with COVID. It's been happening all along because our utility system is inherently profit-driven. When the public interest isn't prioritized, we see utility executive pay going up, and households are increasingly burdened by higher utility bills. Utilities are becoming increasingly successful at overriding any oversight in getting away with fueling a climate emergency by abating a clean energy transition. This leaves households across the country with limited access to life-saving utilities and the resources to actually withstand future crises like the climate emergency. Simply put, our utility system is serving markets and executives, exacerbating racial and economic injustice, and thwarting the much-needed clean and just energy transition. So thinking beyond the pandemic, Gabriela Seri-Tobar says we also need universal utility reform to build a just, equitable energy future where households aren't forced into choosing between keeping their lights on or feeding their families. Here are some of the policies that could put that vision into action. Well, to stop the shutoff, to address energy fragility, We must move towards public ownership of our utility services. We need fair and equitable utility service and greater utility accountability. And policy should advance genuinely clean, renewable, and equitable energy. This could be from community-based solar programs to funding for low-income microgrid projects. This is all to build community resilience in the face of the climate emergency and future crises. Gabriela Seri-Tobar, an energy justice campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. To learn more about their work on this issue and what you can do to be involved, please visit their website at biologicaldiversity.org. From Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. One of the provisions of the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill aims to address decades of discrimination against Black, Hispanic, Native American, and Asian American farmers who have historically been excluded from government agricultural programs. Lawrence Lucas is the founder and president emeritus of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Employees Association. He says... The measure is only a partial victory for black farmers and is certainly not to be considered reparations, as Republican critics of the relief bill complain. There's no reason for a victory lap about this issue of discrimination at USDA because the discrimination at USDA has not stopped. It has not stopped. 
and we got we got uh, class actions, women class action that has not been resolved. You've got cases of farmers whose cases have gone beyond statute of limitation because the process for processing those complaints are not justly processed and adjudicated by USDA. And that does not stop. And it does not end at the foot of Trump. He's, his administration is guilty. The Obama administration is guilty. And so was Bush. So we are trying to put something together in the Justice for Black Farmer Act that once and for all will fix civil rights at USDA. Pickford one didn't do it. Pickford two only paid out uh, late filers. We're trying to fix the systemic problem, the cultural indifference of racism and sexism at USDA. The Justice for Black Farmer Act does just that. That's how important that is. And what you're hearing in the media is that we got, we got, uh, we've got, we've all, we've solved all the problems at USDA. That is not true. That's a marathon away from the truth. And this victory lap that people are taking because the media is treating this like some titillating event, which is only for a short news cycle, that is wrong. And it's not accurate. And that's why you have Cory Booker introducing the Justice for Black Farmer Act of 2021. One of the complaints at the uh, Agriculture Department was John Vilsack when he was the ag secretary before and now he's back uh has he has that tiger changed his spots uh i don't see any evidence uh as far as i'm concerned i have not seen any evidence that tells me that tom vilsap is going to do the job that should have been done that's going to carry out all the issues that are in the Justice for Black Farmer Act. Many of the issues that are, that in the Justice for Black Farmer Act, Tom Vilsap, as Secretary of Agriculture, can do himself uh, by making certain changes and putting certain niches and policies in place. Um, the Clinton administration, during the Clinton administration under Espy and Dan Glickman, they did just that. And there's been no administration that has tackle civil rights in a, in, a, in a very effective way than the Clinton administration did, and, and it deteriorated uh, after the Clinton administration went out and under Bush and under Vilsap and under Obama. And, then, and by the way, this is something that people don't want to print. People do not want to print the truth. The truth should be told. Let history, let the history of, of what has been going on at USDA, let the truth be told and not have what you call titillating um, uh, news events that claim that the problem is solved at USDA. The problem is not solved at USDA. The, the, the Booker um, Justice for Black Farm Act gets to the nuts and bolts and it would fix. It would fix. If everything is implemented as that bill is designed, that will fix civil rights once and for all. Now, 
I'm not so sure that Vilsap is fully prepared and thoroughly understands that he was part of the problem. And if he's not willing to state that he was part of the problem, how can he be part of the solution? Now, there's one other problem that predates Obama, predates Clinton, predates Uh Bush, which is the tremendous loss of land by black farmers, which I remember first hearing it brought up in the 1970s. Has anything anything been done to address the tremendous loss of farmland owned by blacks? The answer to your question is no. However, in the, in the, in the Justice for Black Farmer Act, there's a, in that act, it gives back only a portion, a small piece. 168 60 acres can be given back to those farmers that have been discriminated. Time. That is the first time that anybody has been willing to give back the land. Not only, uh, and you must remember, when they took away the land, what they took is they took away a way of life. They also took away the wealth that would be generated by many generations to come was taken away from black farmers. You, when you take away the land, you take away the wealth. And when you take away the wealth, you take away the, the dignity and the ability of people to pass on the, the, the wealth to another generation. That is something, that is something that has not been dealt with. And I'm not talking about uh, reparations. I'm talking about what we're talking about is justice, not reparation. We want justice for these farmers. Reparation is another story. And this injustice that has been inflicted by the county committee system in rural America, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been a part of that disaster. They've been a part of that destruction. They've been a part of that demeaning culture of racism and sexism perpetrated on black people in this country. They've been a part of that. So where does the status of black employees who were once organized in the Department of Agriculture, where does that stand? And uh, how likely are we to see a victory for the uh, Cory Booker uh, legislation? I think that in this legislation, and I'll repeat again, in this legislation that Cory Booker has introduced, the Justice for Black Farmer Act of 2021. It has all the mechanisms to fix the racism and sexism and abuse that has been going on in USD too long. Now, are you going to be able to go back and find those employees and make them whole? Many of those employees, like the farmers, are dead and gone. We'll never see justice. But what we're doing is trying to set a a a, a a, 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 a procedure in place and a culture and a, and a paradigm set out a new paradigm shift in civil rights at USDA. This, what is going on with the Warnock Bill and what is going on with the Justice for Black Farm Act, this is the greatest thing since 
1963 Civil Rights Act. It is the best thing that's ever been done to do something to show that this country is willing to now say we're willing to fix this problem as best we can now. No, it's not going to make any black farmer whole. It's not going to give back some of the jobs that have been lost. It's not going to. It's not going to be able to uh, 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 cure the psychological damage that rape, assault, and harassment, intimidation, and firing by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But at least it's a beginning. We have to have in this country. It is important that this country deal with this racism, just like you're dealing with Black Lives Matter stuff, like you're dealing with the the police. And, and what they're doing, what they've been doing to black people with the justice system that has been unjust to black people and is still unjust to black people. We have to start someplace. And this bill is a beginning of fixing USDA and making America a better place, not for just white people, but for all people. Lawrence Lucas is spokesman for the Vision for Black Farmers. Deb Holland made history last week by becoming the first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history. She will now lead the Department of the Interior, which oversees treaty obligations with 574 federally recognized Native American tribes. This historic moment means more than just a new face in the department, but it marks a possible symbolic shift in the federal government's relationship with Native American communities. Amara Evering has more. Before Deb Holland's Senate confirmation, she tweeted, quote, A voice like mine has never been a cabinet secretary or at the head of the Department of the Interior. And even this is an understatement. Holland's confirmation is a monumental shift in a department that has historically sought to implement policies to control, contain, and often displace Native American people. As the first Native American person to run the Department of the Interior, she will oversee much of the land owned by the federal government, maintain relationships with 574 federally recognized tribes, and manage wildlife and waterways. I spoke with Laura Tohi, Poet Laureate for the Navajo Nation and professor at Arizona State University, about the significance of this confirmation. She is sitting at the table of the American democracy holding a cabinet post, and this has never happened before. And she's also in the Department of Interior, which is an organization in the government that oversees natural resources on the land and water and so forth, but also is trusted with our trust responsibilities to Native people. So I think that is tremendous. We're happy that we finally have a voice where she is so that some of our issues can be addressed by someone who comes from an Indigenous community. The establishment of the Department of the Interior in 1849 contributed to the facilitation of the forced removal of tribal nations off their ancestral lands. This, on top of the mismanagement of money and resources, has resulted in the Department of the Interior being regarded as an agency built on systematic racism, colonialism, 
negligence, and even violence. The Native peoples of this country have experienced systematic racism from the very beginning, and there's so much history that has happened in this country with the genocide of Native peoples in this country, which is not widely recognized by Americans, but we have had a genocide in this country. Native Americans have been exposed to many forms of violence, from the authorization of over 1,500 wars, massacres, and raids on Native American people, to forced displacement and the withholding of resources. And this violence still continues in the 21st century. We have a lot of social injustice. For example, the missing and murdered Native women. We have lands, our lands that have been taken, uh, sacred lands that have been taken, sometimes without consulting the Native tribes. For example, here in Arizona in the South, one of the tribes in the South, their sacred lands and burial sites were taken away, were just plowed up to put up the wall. So there's a lot of history, a long line of social and environmental injustice. The introduction of Deb Holland into a department that has maintained many of these injustices in our history is groundbreaking to say the least. But to some, this isn't really a good thing. Some have labeled her as a troublesome radical because she's against fracking on public lands, supports the Green New Deal, and opposes the Keystone XL pipeline unlike many other Biden appointees like Janet Yellen or Pete Buttigieg, Holland's hearing was rocky and looked more like a cross-examination rather than a regular evaluation. I asked Tohi why Holland seemed to get so much flack. I think a lot of it has to do with the resources of corporations and oil companies and powerful groups. I think they have other interests that are contrary to trying to save the planet and trying to do the best to make a better world. Corporate interests in the past have led to the taking of sacred lands and burial grounds and even the contamination of drinking water from things like open uranium mines on various reservations, which is still an ongoing issue. To Deb Holland, Corporate interests do not have to be at the expense of Native communities or our environment. We have someone who's coming from a sense of community, someone who looks at everyone in the community, considers those needs. This is our community. This is a we community. And I think she's going to bring that to the policies and decisions that she might make. What she also brings, I think, is indigenous thinking to the stewardship of the land and the water and air and even the animals that we share this planet with. In Holland literally wore this value of community and history on her inner confirmation when she was decorated in traditional clothing, reflecting her heritage as a Laguna Pueblo woman. She wore a ribbon skirt which in its design references the matriarchal power that is carried by indigenous women. And this is something that Tohi remembers discussing with Holland when they met each other years ago. I met her a few years ago. Actually, it was a lot of years ago. We talked about a lot of things, and one of them was our mothers. And we had a lot in common about the way our mothers treated us and what they expected out of us. And the Laguna Pueblo, which is where Deb Hallen is from, and my mother was half Laguna. There are women in our stories that are revered, women that are holy, women that were lawgivers. For Tohi, it wasn't only significant that Holland is Native American, but that she's a Native American woman. 
Tohi used her own upbringing as an example of how being raised in a matriarchal culture as a woman can influence your worldview. I wrote this essay once. It's called There's No Word for Feminism in My Language. And so I examined what does that mean and does it apply to us? And I think it applies to us when we leave our communities and our homeland, we go out into the larger world. But at home, when we're surrounded by our families and our communities, we already have a place there. And this is this is a matriarchal society. Women are in charge of their own bodies. No one tells them what to do with it. So that was how I was raised. And I think Deb Hallen was raised by strong women. And through these matriarchal lines, the values of stewardship of the land, being a responsible leader, and looking out for your people was transferred. Though Holland's appointment will not reverse centuries of injustice and genocide, nor is it anything remotely close to reparations, she is the first step to addressing systematic issues that plague many Native American communities, especially during the pandemic. We are so far behind in this pandemic that revealed so much of how our communities are still in poverty. This enabled the virus to spread quickly and widely in my own community. People still haul water from miles away to their home. We have food deserts. Our medical resources are not nearby. We can't always get internet. You know, I lived through a lot of this when I was growing up uh, with my grandparents and I saw how they, they struggled. We want to improve our infrastructure. We want to have jobs. We want to, we want to even save our native languages. So there is so much to do and to work on. And with Deb Hallen's appointment, this is a first step. And for Tohi, this is a first step she is deeply proud of. Many of the values that Holland represents reflects what Tohi was taught as a young girl by her own grandmother. My grandmother, I lived with her sometimes in the summer, and I'm so grateful that I did because she taught me so much about the natural world and how our relationship established with things like water. She was talking in Navajo, and she said, when you meet water, she said, it has a spirit already. And the way you meet water is you put your hands into the water and you feel it, and, and it'll know you. And when it knows you, then it won't harm you. This is Laura Tohi's poem about meeting water. So this is called Meeting the Spirit of Water for Glenn Tohi. When you come to a river or lake or pond, one you haven't met, you must meet its spirit, place your hand into its belly, feel the energy, stroke its power, caress the life source, let it run through your hands, say a prayer. You must meet its spirit and it will never steal you, was what she told us as children. For us, we can interpret this as, do good to the earth and it will be good to us. Laura Tohi, Navajo Nation Poet Laureate. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering.
That was the song, Women's Power Song, sung by the Akwasani women singers. Last week, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing, the first in more than 30 years on violence and discrimination against Asian people in the United States. The hearing took place amid a surge in anti-Asian hate incidents, and just days after six Asian American women were gunned down in Atlanta, Georgia. Among those who testified was Representative Grace Ming of New York, who spoke powerfully to the need for Congress to take action on this issue and to comments made by Republican Chip Roy of Texas, who praised his state's history of lynching as a metaphor for justice. Unfortunately, so much of this history is not taught in our schools. Excluding Asian Americans from our history books renders us invisible and deems us the perpetual foreigner. In fact, history has excluded the history of Asian Americans, Black Americans, Latino and Native Americans. And that has led to the systemic inequities at many institutions, including our academic institutions. In the 116th Congress, I introduced my resolution to condemn anti-Asian sentiment related to COVID. And I was grateful my resolution passed the House with bipartisan support, except for 164 of our Republican colleagues who voted against it, even though some had the audacity to tweet condolences after Atlanta's tragedy. I'm glad to hear about my colleague, Representative Steele's resolution, and I hope that she has better luck getting her party to support the resolution. During this last year, it became painfully apparent that we need a comprehensive effort from our local communities to the federal level. That's why I support bills like the No Hate Act, and that's why Senator Hirono and I introduced the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which would assign a point person to the Department of Justice to quickly review hate crimes and to make it easier for people to report these incidents. My bill also builds on President Biden's presidential memorandum by directing relevant federal agencies to work with community-based organizations to find ways to talk about the virus in a way that is not racist. I urge my colleagues on this committee for swift consideration of these bills. We cannot turn a blind eye to people living in fear. I wanna go back to something that Mr. Roy said earlier. Your president and your party and your colleagues can talk about issues with any other country that you want, but you don't have to do it by putting a bullseye on the back of Asian Americans across this country, on our grandparents, on our kids. This hearing was to address the hurt and pain of our community and to find solutions, and we will not let you take our voice away from us. Thank you, I yield back. Representative Grace Ming testifying last week before the House Judiciary Committee about discrimination and violence against Asian Americans. Reflecting on last week's killings, labor activist Tarn Gelling composed and recorded this, titled, Song is Spirit.
feel the weight of a burden inside when there's no escape but to weep and cry in the face of hurt in the face of pain when loss reveals truth remains song is spirit and spirit is breath between notes and octaves there is a rest when we pause in breath spirit can rest rhythm is a bass drum beating through veins just as the tide waxes and wanes song is spirit spirit is breath when we pause in breath spirit can rest when you feel the weight of a burden inside when there's no escape but to weep and cry in the face of hurt in the face of pain when loss reveals truth remains song is spirit performing her composition, Song is Spirit. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance and mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Mm-hmm.